Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and family and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Listener discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook, thedjburr on Instagram, and at djburr1022 on Twitter. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you on. And yeah, so uh, everyone, this is Anne, and Anne's going to be talking to us today about uh, her addiction history and recovery, and she's going to be sharing with us uh, some information about who she is in the clinical field and the type of folks that she treats, uh, and is a therapist who works with uh, folks dealing with addiction, and like myself, and so we'll hear from her perspective as well about what she believes contributes to people becoming addicts. So Anne, welcome. Thank you. Yes. So tell us, Anne, where are you from? Uh, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. I lived there for 19 years. Okay. And that's formerly where my addiction got started. All right. Is your whole family from there? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Are, they're still there? Um, I have a brother over there, but like both my parents have passed and I have one aunt. I have some cousins over there still. Okay. All right. And did you do some, uh, did you go to school over there too? Yeah, I went to, uh, yeah, I graduated high school. I went through high school over there. So you did all through high school and then you went off to college? No, no. Okay. I did one quarter of college at Spokane Falls Community College and then I dropped out and, um, when I moved to California really abruptly, like in a week I decided and just like Flew the coop. Oh, wow. What took you to California? Um, I was a couple things. I, uh, I, I was my mom's caretaker. My mom was severely depressed my whole life, and she just slept all the time. And so um, both my brothers were living in Seattle, and so I, she was very dependent on me, and she lived on cigarettes, coffee, and, like, sugar and so I felt very my codependency was very painful and I didn't really have boundaries Mm -hmm. and so she would call and make requests and it was really hard for me to set limits and say no and you know she expect things when I needed to be at work and such so it was really painful to be in that relationship and I I just uh, I needed a a break from that Um, and then also in the other category of life I uh, had broken up with a boyfriend a few months back and I just went to California. He moved to California with my a friend, mm-hmm. a mutual friend, and, and I just went down there to, to, to get away from Spokane. Um, and then I ended up uh, living with my cousin in San Diego in it for a few months and then some girlfriends came down and we all lived together. Okay, and is California where your addiction started to emerge or was that before you got to California? No, it emerged when I was like, 
Wow. Okay. So we're so we're gonna go back to uh, Spokane. Yeah. So can you tell us uh, what what was going on for you? Um, well, you know, in the family system, um, parents left a divorce when I was four. Okay. And dad kind of just left and start started a new family. And um, what happened with my mom was that she just fell apart. She just emotionally fell apart. She had never worked. She just literally when I got into first grade, she just slept all the time. And the way that we knew that she had been up when we were away at school was if the cigarettes had moved or if the coffee pot went up or down mm. in the volume of the coffee pot. And, you know, so we would come home to a dark house. The drapes were drawn. It was a mess. Uh, we were raising ourselves from like, uh, from like age seven. I was doing my own laundry. We were figuring out food for ourselves. Like, she would get a roll of quarters, nickels and dimes, and I was scared to death to go in there and get, it was 40 cents for hot lunch. Okay. Like one of each, just to get hot lunch. Um, my oldest brother would ride his bike to the store and get food for us. She always had cash somehow, mm -hmm. I don't know how. Um, and so, um, and so my mom slept a lot, which okay. left me, the youngest girl, vulnerable. Mm. Right. And so an adult neighbor abused me. My oldest brother abused me. Um, there was no one to take care. When my mother's, when my grandmother died when I was 10, my mom had a nervous breakdown and had a series of electric shock treatments. Wow. And she was never the same, which left me more vulnerable. Yeah. So that's when my brother started abusing me for years. And then the adult neighbor, he was a, a real pedophile in the neighborhood. And so like and you know all other kinds of weird stuff happen like you know my other brother michael the one that helped me get sober he was always like i wondered why all that stuff happened to you like i'd be out in front raking the yard mm -hmm. and somebody would come up and expose themselves to me that happened multiple times to me in spokane but Good you know that grief. victim yeah like you can see that in people mm -hmm. like that thing happened to me I was almost abducted in uh, when I was 12 years old. I was coming home from school. I was almost abducted. And um, like so many things had happened that my mom didn't believe me or pay attention to. Like I didn't even tell her about it. Goodness. You know, so it was like so much abandonment, emotional, physical abandonment, and so much neglect in my home. Yeah. Right? My dad. He did see us on a regular basis, so life was sort of normal over there. I'm like, wow, we're eating dinner. <laughs> we're sitting down here. Like, oh my God, she's washing our clothes. One of the best memories I have about my, my dad and Steph's mom's house mm -hmm. is the smell of starch. Because she, huh. she starched clothes. She ironed on Saturdays. Okay. So that normality. Right, right. Like, Somebody's running the show here. Mm. Like she made cookies, made barbecue. I, I'd never had corn on the cob before. Mm -hmm. I'd never had a barbecue before. My mom did not cook. So she made four things. And we ate at fast food. We were raised on fast food. And Goodness. It was really embarrassing. So anyway, I stole her Valium. I smoked pot. I bought my own pot and smoked in my room. Um, we drank, um, and then when I was 14, I found amphetamines. 
at a concert, and then that was it. That was it. I was off and running. Okay, so when you when you say you stole her medications, did you know what they were for? Uh, I didn't know what effect they would have on me. Okay. I didn't, but in seventh grade, this was the deal. I was taking Valium. I would wake up. I had. I would have no idea what day of the week it was. I wouldn't know if it was a day to get up to go to school. Mm. Saturday is it Tuesday? And then on the way, and, and then what we would do is on the way to school, we would smoke pot and drink Mad Dog. That was the seventh grade during the week show. Okay. Like just needed to numb out because there right. was so much going on. And I wonder if some of your your usage at that time was because maybe your peers were using? A lot of my peers were using, and so a lot of it seemed normal to me. But okay. they had no idea that I was going through, back in the 70s, what was like a lit a week. Like, you know, I was buying it. Mm-hmm. I was using alone in my room because, you know, no one's around to care or to monitor. And then I was buying a jar of speed, starting, in, starting at age 15 I was buying a jar of speed and it was all for personal use cross tops and I was buying black beauties and Christmas trees and and then uh, so I was using daily I used amphetamines daily daily for 10 years Gosh. and um, you know obviously I was depressed and I didn't know and so you know that helped manage the emotional pain the depression managed my life a bit mm-hmm. um, and then when I moved to California at age 19 they didn't have pills I just couldn't find pills but they had powder so but cocaine wouldn't do anything for me uh, crank was just gross so I got into methamphetamines mm. and I used that every day for three years and that's when it, it got bad that's when it got bad yeah and then I, I could drink drink so much. I mean, I could just, I, I could just drink so much on methamphetamine. So when you're you're telling me that you were using drugs every day. Every day. So I'm imagining that it would be difficult to be actually living life while using every day. Well, yes, but I have a very interesting story that I always lived a double life. I was an athlete. Oh. I was an athlete. I, I, um, you know, sports is what helped me survive my childhood okay sports and connection with that uh, camaraderie mm-hmm. we had a, a park half block away so the sport the summer programs so we played softball all summer and then I played softball in high school as on a varsity and then all my whole like until uh, until I was like 38 I played softball okay. so I did fast pitch in the summer and vars- I was like I had the highest batting average in, in high school wow and then I did track and then I ran and you know like um and so and then I worked out I've always had a membership to the gym since age 18 so it was in California I worked out every like six days a week and all I could do all I could eat because meth shuts down your ability to eat it did for me I was living on frozen yogurt like that's all I was eating but I was living I was working at a restaurant so I would take a shower at the gym and just like hold on to the walls and just will myself not to pass out in the shower like every day. That sounds scary. Yes, and then I was having heart pain from the methamphetamine. Goodness. And then I go to the gym. And no one knew what was going on. No, I was used to people not knowing. Yeah. Because of the family situation, I right. was able to sort of like 
I was used to being really outgoing and, you know, all my girlfriends and mothers loved me because, mm-hmm. you know, nobody really knew and I got that mask pretty well established. It sounds like it. And having that ability to um, kind of have my drug, adu- drug use uh, underground, mm-hmm. you know, and then I just sort of, just sort of uh, inched through school, just, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah, it was pretty painful uh, life, lots of trauma, you know, and then, you know, during my addiction, lots of bad things happened, you mm-hmm. know, as well, because, you know, you're not really in your right mind, you're impaired, your judgment's impaired. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that I'm really amazed at is I never got a DUI. Never. Never. <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm still shocked. I'm so uh. shocked. And the belief I had when I was in California was that I just had this personal belief that my dad was watching out for me. Yeah. You know, like, you know, and, and my tolerance was so high. Mm. Really high tolerance. I was in the car with my best friend twice when she got a DUI. Um, you know, because <laughs> she didn't really have a high tolerance. Right. I don't know why she really strove. But, you know, that's one thing. I never got a legal charge. Never. No. Wow. That's not the first time I've heard that. You know, yeah. a lot of people go through their addiction career not having to interact with the legal system. Yeah. And I think that's what takes a, that's what takes people a long time to kind of hit bottom. Right. Right. Because uh, that legal system uh, uh, interaction is what kind of jolts people into recovery, I found. Yes, it can. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I remember leaving the restaurant that I worked at in California and I was so, so drunk. And I could barely get the key in the car. And then I was driving home. You know, you're driving home with one eye trying to figure out where the line is. And it's pretty scary. That sounds scary. It's really scary. Yeah, wow. And I was really, really paranoid at the end with mm. the methamphetamines. Like when I'd be driving home from wherever at night, I always thought somebody was following me mm-hmm. on the freeway. You know, especially when you're coming home at four in the morning and right. one car on the road. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so I had a lot of other physical problems as a result of the meth. Um, you know, I worked in a restaurant. I did. I, I, I was a uh, I started, it was an Italian restaurant, these three brothers. So I was the first woman to be allowed in their kitchen. Oh. It was, so it was like this honor, and so I felt I had to prove myself. Mm-hmm. So I started in the back and worked myself up to being kitchen manager. So I felt really proud of myself for this, because it was several stages, you know. And so I was very strong and, you know, lots of lifting and lots of, you know, using all these muscles. And uh, so I'd wake up in the morning because of the meth, and I would, like, You'd be clenched. I'd be all clenched, and I could oh. bear it. it. would take me like an hour to open up my hand, literally. So I'd have to get up early to get myself. Every day. Every day. In California, those I yeah. worked at that restaurant the whole three years. And oh. um, I'd have to like warm up my hands so I could open them up and use them. And mm-hmm. my TMJ was just so bad. Um, I have videos of myself when my son was born around age 34 we did a lot of filming when he mm-hmm. was, you know because you know he's already and i watched him about a year ago and the first thing i noticed was all my tmj yeah stuff it's not that bad anymore but it right it was really noticeable then mm, so your body was uh really being impacted by the drug use mm-hmm. yeah 
And I heard you say about having the heart palpitations and such. Did, did that get any worse? No, because it was just it, it, it was just when I was using. Okay. You know, um, I mean, you know, it didn't continue after I stopped. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Right. All right. Any other physical conditions as a result? Um, well, I was nutritionally deficient when I got to Seattle, mm -hmm. and I got sober. Um, my clean date is October 14th, 1984. And so when I got here that next fall, in the fall of 1985, I started having kidney stone attack, or you know, oh, kidney man. stone. And so um, what happened was I, uh, what I found out later after a few surgeries and hospitalizations is that I, I had too much, let's see, too much calcium and not enough magnesium and you know because I had such a poor diet in California and then when I got here I was you know trying to manage life without drugs mm -hmm. and trying to manage my emotions I went back to my first addiction which was sugar okay because when I was a kid nobody monitored what we ate we could eat as much as we wanted and sugar and right you know we're like a thin kid but still mm -hmm. you know when nobody gives you any sort of uh, boundaries right you know, so I went back to that pattern, of, and so I was eating a lot of chocolate, and you know, so lots of calcium mm. in that, but no magnesium, and so that was building these stones, mm. and so that was a hic a health hiccup from sure. from that lifestyle. Goodness, well, I, I I'm curious, can you t can you share a little bit more about uh, when you were living in California and you were using drugs, like? When when was it the worst? Like, what happened to to help you wake up? Oh, okay, yeah. Um, well, I a couple two things, I guess. I was feeling dead inside. Mm -hmm. I felt dead. I had no feelings. I felt very cut off from my emotions. Um, I felt a really difficult time connecting with people. I could not for the life of me do eye contact with anybody. I felt like they could just see inside. Yeah. You know, my eyes were always red and glassy no matter what was going on. <laughs> and so I felt like it was like telltale sign, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so what happened is in March of 85, or excuse me, March of 84, my best friend from high school came to visit and she, you know, we were best friends from Spokane and she had formerly lived in California, but she went back to Washington and was in school in Olympia at St. Martin's. And she kept writing me these letters, you know, you're going to you know, come back to Washington. You're going to keep doing the drugs if you're down there. And so she came down for her birthday and um, she ended up just doing everything with me. She did meth and smoked pot and drank. And then she was just like a subjective reporter. Mm -hmm. I can't sleep. How can you sleep? How can you, how can you, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm so tense, you know, how can you manage your life like this? And, you know, she had to get, I didn't smoke pot anymore, but she got some pot from my roommate to sleep. And, like, she just, like, really expressed how discomforting it was to be on the meth. Wow. And I was just like, oh, my God, that, it's so normal for me. And then I realized by spending time with her that my life was completely stagnant. Mm -hmm. And she had moved forward a lot with school and, and having a healthy boyfriend and she 
feeling motivated and excited about life. So when she left on after that weekend, it was March, her birthday is March 25th. Mm-hmm. So after that weekend, that was my first attempt at, I was beetling to okay. at the restaurant and I had everybody come over and I gave everything away. And I started my first attempt at two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks on, two weeks on, because <laughs> I didn't know how to get sober for the yeah. life of me, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happened was it was like diving off a cliff. Mm. Because when you do any sort of stimulant, your natural endorphins stop producing. Right. So I had no endorphins. I had no natural endorphins. So I would just I was just like in a deep caress of depression. And so it was like this, like down, up, down, up. And so I was drinking tons of coffee and having the, the deli girl go across the parking lot to get me like four candy bars a day just to like get through the hour mm. just cause at, as a, at, at the restaurant. Yeah. And so, um, and then I would spiral and go use again and get off it. And, you know, so I did that for a while. And then my brother, Michael, yeah. uh, got with me and said, hey, I'd love to come down for a visit. I'd love to go downtown and go dancing and dinner and go to the zoo and Sea World, and I remember standing in that house and telling him, oh, you'll be so proud of me, I just quit doing drugs. Mm. But he had no idea what that meant. Because he had left Spokane when I was 14, and, and now I'm 24. And, like, a lot had gone on. So he comes down, and I'm a mess. I'm in one of my two weeks without drugs. Okay. Like, I don't know where he slept. I don't remember going out we never made it downtown we never made it to sea world we never made it to the zoo like we we didn't do anything nothing Nothing. okay um and so what i remember is that my mother came down and they also remember about the little intervention is um and we think it's time that you get out of california and come back to washington did he call her when once he arrived yeah yeah Okay, so it wasn't like they had already had it planned. Oh no! no okay. He had no idea. All right. No, 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 no. He was surprised. I'm sure he was frightened and disappointed. And yeah, I bet he was really scared. Very scared. I was a mess. Yeah. Wow. But you know, I'd, part of that being in California was um, getting autonomy against away from my mom, so I hadn't really been in touch very much. Mm-hmm. I did go back for one trip for a wedding, and I saw my brother, and I saw my mom, but you know, had my mask on so nobody really knew what was going on. Right. So um, so what happened next was uh, I, they left. I, like, had a garage sale. I gave my notice. Uh, and my brother came back. And my mom flew him down. And then we took a week. I loaded up my Chevy Nova hatchback. I gave mm-hmm. a bunch of my stuff away, my <laughs> bike and my skates and mm-hmm. my fun stuff. And um, we took a week to drive up to Seattle. Now, I had just had a blowout, meaning I used again for two weeks, and I didn't have time to sleep or deal with. So I bought a half a gram of of meth, I didn't tell him, and we, uh, our adventure was, we went to Palm Springs, had fun for a day, and we just shared a a hotel. The the whole way, Santa Barbara, San Jose, San Francisco, and then Seattle, and, so every day when he'd go in the shower, I'd just do one line. And basically one line would just bring me up, like just halfway mm. into basic consciousness. So I yeah. could function a little bit dry. <laughs> but he was 
really frustrated me with me during that trip with my driving because I'd be driving down the freeway and um, I forgot to say another thing. Um, I had bad varicose veins from on my feet. Uh-huh. And this leg especially would pound. So I would drive with this leg up out the window. Oh, jeez. Down the freeway at 70. And he would just... And then I'd see a sign for Dairy Queen and I would just like cross <laughs> the freeway <laughs> to get the sugar. And, you know, it was impulsive. And he, right. you know, he'd get upset with me because he knows that sugar makes you thirsty. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to get a 7-Up also. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a great time. And... Um, we went to our, our cousins and my aunt lived in San Jose. So we went to San Jose for three days. And um, like I thought it was really obvious that something was going on. Mm-hmm. But talking to them years later, they had no idea. No idea. They had no idea that like, w- like something's going on with Anne. Right. Like, that still amuses me. I'm like, <laughs> how can you not know by looking at me that something's going on? Denial. Right. So... Uh, we had a great time. I remember Santa Barbara was beautiful. I remember we were at an Italian dinner that night in Santa Barbara. And I remember he, he said to me that night, it's the first time I heard this term, we come from a dysfunctional family. Mm. And I was like, what? What is what that? What does that mean? Yeah. yeah. Huh. He figured it out. Yeah, he, he, he and I were the caretakers for mom, but he was two years older, so he was already... He was always a little bit ahead. Yeah, he was a caretaker for everyone. And me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so so we get to Seattle uh, in May of 1984. And um, meanwhile, I've been living with lots of drug addicts. My whole life is surrounding dealing drugs, partying, mm-hmm. no boundaries. Michael is a, he's a business owner. He's a homeowner. He lives with like two other business owners, a therapist. Like all these people are like, Adults, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm freaked out. I'm like, so the expectation is I have to work full time. I have to go to meetings and I have to be in therapy. I'm like, that's very reasonable, right? He tells me that they've talked about treatment for me, but I, I didn't even know that. I didn't know the concept of boundaries till I was 28. Mm-hmm. So. I was only 24. Like, if somebody had suggested treatment, I would have went. Right. That was a conversation we had years later. (laughs) I'm like, what? Hmm. So I went out, got a job the first day in a restaurant on Pier 57. Okay. Downtown. Uh Uh-huh. As a cook. And um, worked, got in therapy, um, went to meetings. um, And, um, but reality set in. uh, I was unloading the dishwasher and uh, putting the silverware away. And you know, it's just like, uh-huh. and I get called back into the room by my brother. He opens up the drawer of the silverware. He's like, what is this? Cause I just, you know, I didn't put it in. I mean, I put this, this, you know, the spoons with the spoons and the forks. With the right. But, <clears throat> so this was my welcome to Michael's perfectionism uh. and control issues. And things need to be in order, and like I didn't have any order in my life, mm. right? And so, anyway, that was interesting. That's um, how he coped. Yes, and gotcha. so life as I once knew it would never be the same. Okay. Right, and so now I'm living with all these adults <laughs> that have boundaries, say no when they need to say no, can mm-hmm. talk about feelings, and I was just 
overwhelmed. Yeah, I would have been overwhelmed too. The time. Yeah. Hmm. And when, where did you start going to meetings? Was that downtown? Um, well, what happened was one of the roommates uh, worked at, it was called Northwest Bell back then, the phone company. Uh-huh. Yeah. And she had a really cl- close male friend that worked there. He was in NA. He was a heroin addict. And so they called him up and said, we've got a project for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, his name was Bruce, and he came over and... Um, he took me to meetings downtown. He took me to meetings all over. I was a little overwhelmed. Yeah. Because I was very overwhelmed with this whole idea of like opening up and sharing. And mm-hmm. uh, so, we, you know, I, I, I you know, got introduced to mochas and lattes and <laughs> coffee and all of that as well. So we went downtown, Capitol Hill. He lived over by like 23rd and Cherry, went to meetings over there. Um, I didn't figure out the concept of women's meetings for a, quite a while. Okay. Like, that's what I needed because mm-hmm. what was happening was I was getting all this attention from men and getting asked out, and, and then there was some 13-stepping. And so so then meetings were, like, a little triggering and traumatizing for me sure. because I didn't know how to say no. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that was uncomfortable Yeah. and frightening for me. With my history. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So did someone in a meeting introduce you to women's meetings and and how did you find out about those? Uh, I think it was my therapist. Okay. My therapist told me about women's meeting and then there was one, I'm not sure, I think it was across from Cal Anderson Park on Capitol Hill. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went there, and what was great about that is I ran into this wonderful, beautiful woman that I went to high school with. Really? It was really great. We had dinner, and, you know, it was really a nice connection to, like, go, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Here's a person I went to high school with. Sure. We played softball together on the varsity softball team. And, you know, it was great. And then there was a friend of my brother's that um, she needed meetings, but she didn't have a car. So every Saturday I would pick her up, and we would go to the women's meeting down in Madison valley at the hotel mm-hmm. yeah okay and, but i wasn't very i was very locked down yeah in my early sobriety i didn't know how to talk share process mm-hmm. it was very hard for me to stay after and connect i didn't have the skills mm. it just you know because i was so locked down for so long right you know with the drugs just locking everything down and this was at a narcotics anonymous meeting i think now i think i was at aa now oh aa yeah, okay all right. Yeah, yeah, I think the NA meetings frightened me a little bit for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little too much. I mean, he took me to biker meetings, and, you know, it was just, I felt like a little deer in the headlights. You sure. Know? It was too much too quickly. Because mm-hmm. he was a heroin addict, so he took me to NA. Yeah. Yeah, and then okay. he later died of a heroin overdose. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you know. I think it's important for women to know that there are options um, for women and just for women in uh, the 12-step community. Yeah. Now, there are, you know, in different places that might not be an option and that might be something someone might be interested in starting if yeah. they're in like an area where a women's meeting doesn't exist. But it's important. Can you speak on the difference between the meetings other than just the safety element? Yes, absolutely. Um, what I find the difference in meetings is 
in a mixed meeting, um, like over the years, I was able to take better care of myself, you know, physically mm-hmm. and emotionally. Um, but in a woman's meeting, um, what I notice is that there's there's just so much more support emotionally to share from the heart, and 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 there's there's um, more emotional support to share the things that are that are coming up emotionally. So if, if there's been abuse histories or um, trauma or something going on at home or people have a lot of emotion on their heart, they can let it out there and cry yeah. and get this off their chest in a way or in a way that they feel supported. Um, when there's men in the room, sometimes women feel a bit hesitant to kind of open up that part of their life. You know, they may feel um, if there's been some trauma or been some judgment or been some areas of life where it ha- they haven't felt supported by men, mm-hmm. they kind of keep that locked down. And so for us to heal and to get real recovery, we need complete acceptance yeah. to share. And so that's where women's meetings came in, in for me okay. in AA. Did you get a sponsor in AA? I, I did. Okay. Yeah, and did the step work and... Um, done that you know multiple times and, yeah um you know because that's you know doing all that good work was really helpful for me right yeah and, and learning how to you know open up to somebody mm-hmm. other than a therapist okay you know on a different level was important well good I, i'm glad to, to hear that you had that you started to create that that layer of support with the meetings and therapists and sponsor and sponsorship um, so when, when's your um, clean date again? October 14th, 1984. Wow. That was a week before I turned two. Oh, my God. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so you got sober. And what did, you, what did you do after that? Did you keep going to meetings? Did you work on other things? Did you get more clarity about your history? Um, yeah, so, so I got in therapy first, um, and I think my brother helped me find a therapist because I didn't know how to do that. And, um, I remember her very clearly and, um, like it was just in the beginning, just talking about stress, I would turn all red in my chest and my face because Mm -hmm. just talking about like stress and emotions brought up that rush of red yeah yeah and so getting used to that I mean that's all that those first two years of therapy were just talking about daily life stress and just getting used to that it was like a skill and a muscle I didn't have and I was developing that and then then I got a new therapist Mm -hmm. that person didn't have good boundaries at all she invited me to her house for Thanksgiving and I was like alrighty then well okay oh wow and um you knew then that that was not a good boundary. That was a poor boundary. Yeah, I knew that. Okay, good. And I'm glad that you knew that. Yeah. So then I got a, a therapist. In 1989, I got a therapist, and w- I was with her for 16 years, and we worked on everything. 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 You know. Um, so I was in my undergraduate then. I So I was working full-time, and then um, at this point, I was working at Safeway, mm-hmm. like in the morning, so I was going to school at night at Seattle Central, and um, I got my AA degree, and then in 1989, 
I had had it with grocery and working <laughs> in those sorts of jobs. And I mm-hmm. went to Seattle uh, University and got my BA in psychology and my addiction studies degree. Okay. Yeah. And so it was during that time that I was seeing this other therapist. And um, so um, that was a, a particularly painful time um, in my life. I didn't do a very graceful job of moving out of my brother's house. Oh. And um, I think I appeared, I'm not sure exactly what the conflict was, but I don't think I appeared very or grateful um, and so he didn't speak to me for three years mm. and um, so he had a strong boundary and so I kept sending uh, amends letters kind of guessing mm-hmm. and then when my mom was in town I'd see him and he'd be appropriate and hi but you know we wouldn't talk and then uh, and so it was during that time that he got his AIDS diagnosis oh and so we weren't in communication so it was yeah. really sad you know because I was just so I was in therapy trying to deal with all that myself, mm-hmm. you know, without being in touch with him directly, and that was super painful. So I was doing a lot of grief work, yeah. Um, well, you know, and then I was doing the abuse work of the sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. I was doing all that work um, and, um, and all the family of origin work, and um, it was really painful. So when I was at CLU, what my mom was able to do was she supported me financially so I didn't have to work okay so and she paid for my therapy that's helpful okay this is her amends so she paid for my therapy and she paid for my living expenses and uh, later later on after I got my master's degree at Seattle University she also paid off my student loans as her amends to me so and uh, it sounds like you accepted her amends. I, I did. Yes, we talked a lot. So um, the therapy work was, I mean, I've been in therapy for probably, probably about 30 years. Yeah. Because there's been so much to do and I'm currently in therapy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so there was, you know, grief, um, family of origin. Um, I was in a head-on collision with my and then then I got married then I had my son and then I was in a head-on collision with him and there's just a lot of stuff so mm-hmm. a lot of therapy right? therapy is helpful it is and yeah it's, it's heavy it's heavy yeah I wouldn't be alive without it yeah yeah me either yeah yeah, yeah. so um and I was in school to become a therapist and so you know like processing and integrating all of that mm-hmm. part of it right and um what's funny looking back um I, well, looking back at my life, one of the ways I survived was I was a striver in sports. I, you know, being a striver and looking back, I didn't realize I was a budding perfectionist. But when I got into (laughs) school, I became a perfectionist. And when I was in graduate school, I was a crazy perfectionist. I mean, in graduate schools, I got all A's and one A minus. What? That is crazy. Like, yeah, I drove myself nutty. Yeah, and probably everybody else around. It, it, that sounds familiar <laughs> to myself. I absolutely can can relate. Yeah. Okay. And and when did you know that you wanted to be a therapist and help people struggling with addiction? Uh, that was in 1989 when I, um, well, I decided 
that. When I went to CRU and decided on their psychology program, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to just do a, like a general psychology without a focus. Okay. Because some of my friends there were like, well, I don't, maybe geriatrics, maybe. And they were going back to work at Safeway. I was just horrified by that. So I chose mm. a focus and I personally believe that my greatest weakness is now my greatest strength. My recovery is now helping others. So I chose the chemical dependency program because I knew I could do really well with that and help others. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. You know, being authentic and helping others navigate sobriety. Mm -hmm. Which is so important. We need it. Yeah. We, we need more people like you and I out there helping people navigate the addiction and recovery. Um, I wonder. I wonder if we can shift a, a focus, okay, sure. and talk a little bit about the work that you do, uh -huh. right? So, can you tell uh, our audience, you know, what is it that you do in your practice? Sure. Um, so, I've been a therapist for twenty six years now, and I worked in agencies for twenty years. I did a lot of group work, assessments, reports you know, all the stuff, individual family work, all that. And um, I've been in, and then I did a group private practice. And then about a year and two months ago, I opened up my own practice. That's exciting. It is exciting. And I have a full thriving practice. It, wow. So excited. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting. Nice. I love, yeah, I love my, I love my life right now. That's really amazing. Yeah. So I specialize in uh, like the co-occurring addiction work mm -hmm. and I see I would say I see about about 80% of the people I see are struggling with either alcohol or drug addiction sex or love addiction and you know and then we have the outlier that also have some food issues body image issues it, 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 like along with those other two. right mm -hmm. some people they just have that but I don't have a lot of people coming to me just primarily for that right yeah okay yeah, and underneath all of that is a lot of anxiety and depression or maybe another mood disorder that hasn't been identified. Mm -hmm. And I, in my practice, there's a lot of people dealing with trauma. So I'm assuming yeah. that you also deal with people who yes. are working through trauma. Yes, okay. a lot of trauma. Yeah, trauma, I mean, trauma, in my opinion, is what really triggers that, that addiction. Mm -hmm. What's your take on it? I... Yes, I, I agree with that. I see a lot of um, unprocessed trauma, unrecognized trauma in my clients. A lot of people have, like part of their coping mechanism has just been to normalize it mm -hmm. and just tell themselves, well, that's just how it was, that's just what it is, and they don't even really think about it as trauma. Um, and then their using has like overlaid on top of it. And so, so, and then it's common to for not have memories of certain chunks of life and once we start to uncover some of these things and put some appropriate language to some of these parts of life, people are really like uh, overwhelmed a little bit that, that trauma is what it's called. You yeah. Know, even when I'm just doing my first three sessions and I'm asking some of these relationship questions in the family, like, you know, who did you go for nurturing? Who, who, who was there for you for emotional support? Right. Who was there for you if you needed a hug? And when people don't have anybody, and then we start talking about, you know, um, you know, emotional neglect, physical neglect, like those words are really hard for people to 
you know, apply to themselves. Mm-hmm. And then we're looking then later about, well, okay, so now you're using pornography and masturbating six hours a day, yeah. um, you know, and now you're drinking, um, you know, a fifth <laughs> four nights a week. Wow. What are yeah. you escaping? What are you running from? Let's get to the pain. Mm-hmm. Escape. It is. Yeah. It's yeah. an escape. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that we all, um, I think all, all of us human beings, we like to escape pain, but it doesn't, um, addiction doesn't affect everyone. Right. 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 So I wonder, do you think that having that nurturing environment protects those people who are not impacted by addiction? Or is there something else? Um, I believe that secure attachment, like really secure attachment really helps individuals feel supported and loved and nurtured and held. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, there's not as much of a like likelihood that they're going to you know, they may experiment with this or that or get into this or that, but it may not fully get into a, a, an excessive right. pattern. Um, and I don't think that's in all cases, mm-hmm. um, but it's less likely when there's insecure or anxious attachment or disorganized attachment, then, then you know, I, I always call it the hole in our soul where I trying to fill up something. Right. Filling up that hole with things and some people are insatiable. You know, I have many clients that have alcohol, drug issues. They have sex and love issues. They have the spending issues. And they have, um, you know, just that constant self-worth mm-hmm. deprivation. It's the self-esteem. Yep. Yeah. The low self-esteem. Yeah. And um, in my work, I find that most people who walk through the door, they don't even like themselves. Right. And I think a lot of it's related to what they've experienced, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they got the message that they weren't worthy. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think the addiction to whatever that might be, drugs, pornography, uh, sex, shopping, spending, um, it helps numb that pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I also talk about like a whole list of other mal, I call it a maladaptive list of coping that underneath we're avoiding like right you know whether it's perfectionism of over busy over producing overdoing yep um too much screen time mm-hmm. passive communication being just being passive mm-hmm. you know um things like that where there's a little bit of pain underneath some of these things like people that just watch like i have somebody that has uh like on their day off they'll sit and watch like 12 hours of netflix and they're just avoiding and, and there's there's pain underneath that because they're not managing their life. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're managing your life, your bills are paid, your kids or pets are taken care of, you haven't missed a day at work and everything is going well. I think it's OK to maybe spend a couple hours binge watching a show mm-hmm. as long as you can get your butt up. Right. And go do something productive after. Mm-hmm. Right. We all need a break. Yeah. So it's not that, you know, if we spend a lot of time doing something that that becomes an addictive behavior. Right. It's when it starts causing negative consequences in our lives. I think that where where the problem comes. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I really appreciate uh, the fact that I can turn to you as a colleague and a, as a friend to to talk about these kind of these these topics Mm -hmm. right it's important for the community to hear from us you know folks who have been through it 
and continue to to do the work, right? Not only on ourselves, but to help other people, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think our message will help other people. Can you talk to our audience about what keeps you sober? What do you do? Yeah. Well, my highest goal is to do self-care every day. And part of that is my spiritual program. Um, You know, keeping my sight on, you know, turning my will and my life over to God. You know, keeping life simple, keeping my prayer simple, but I, I do that every day. I, I connect with God every day. Um, and I, you know, one of the ways I do self-care is I keep boundaries really firm. I keep my boundaries clear. I know what, when I'm taking on too much or, you know, um, I've, uh, I've, in the interest of self-care, I've had to let go of some people in my life in the last year. I've had to say, gosh, you know, you're not treating me well. This is not good for me. I'm going to have to set you aside. I've done that with three people in the last year, all female friends. Mm -hmm. um, But they've all violated my boundaries and trust. And I've just entered, uh, I just started up a friendship with one of them because she was appropriate. We made amends and this and that. I randomly ran into her and it was great. So, but the other two, they were disrespectful. So that's Mm self-care around boundaries. Um, Meetings, um, program, sponsor, still meet my sponsor every other week um i you know my 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 sober peers are really important like tonight we're going to go see the the uh patriots day okay planning it for weeks and weeks and weeks with two sober peers nice um exercise is super important for me okay um i've exercised my whole life um, but one of the things that's been going on for the last two years is I've had all this physical effects of all the trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, as a trauma survivor, it turns up the dial of stress in your body. Yep. Like the ACE score, my ACE score is really high. It's like a nine. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, you know, I have like four or five autoimmune disorders. And so, uh, and a lot of arthritis. So the last two years, I haven't really been able to do much. So I've been healing. And so bought myself a spin bike awesome and i can do 30 minutes without hurting good i'm super excited so very cool exercise and the summer i was swimming and and i can do some pilates and yoga so exercise is super important Mm -hmm. just connecting with my friends and um yeah i mean like it it never occurs to me to drink for years i mean never beautiful it doesn't even occur to me that's really amazing yeah um, I did something really interesting at Christmas. Um, I, uh, my son is 22, and he spent a night with me at Christmas. And um, I bought beer for the first time in 32 years. Oh! I bought him a case of beer at Costco at Costco for Christmas. Uh huh. And um, I put six in the fridge for Christmas Eve, and then because I pretended like I bought him a six pack, mm-hmm. and then I wrapped the case. <laughs> <laughs> it was so weird to buy beer. Huh. It was very weird, and it was weird. I was sitting there, and he was sitting here. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, he's drinking beer in my house. This is so weird. Okay. <laughs> it was very interesting. Weird. All yeah, right. It was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because, huh. like, there's been no alcohol in this house for, I mean, I've lived here 10 years, and there's been no alcohol in this house for Okay. Huh. Yeah. And, and, and that didn't cause any discomfort um, for you while he was here? Uh, no, no. No discomfort. Uh, 
it was interesting. I, I've only, I bought, uh, I've only been out with him twice in restaurants where it's in the last year after he turned 21. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you want to go out to dinner? I'm like, yeah, have a drink if you'd like, you know? Right. You know, so he's had a drink twice when we've gone out to dinner and, um, and then, and then this, yeah. Hmm. And so it's interesting. Yeah. His dad has bought him beers out to dinner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a trip. (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah, I can go out to restaurants with people and they'll have a drink. That's fine. Yeah. You know, um, it's about boundaries. Yeah, it's about boundaries. It's about boundaries. Yeah, so the boundary was you have to take it all with you. Exactly. Yeah, please. Right, don't leave any here. Yeah, don't leave any here. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> he left the ice cream here. He wanted ice cream for Christmas e- evening and then he didn't eat the ice cream. So the boundary was I <laughs> ate the ice cream. <laughs> that was the downfall. Wow. So, Anne, before we wrap up, I, I, I want to know, it, what do you want people to know? What do you want our audience to know? Is there anything you would like to share in part to the people that are listening? Um, I would say that, you know, recovery is possible. Recovery is possible for everybody. That support is essential, you know, whether it's a therapist, 12-step, you know, a friend, you know, um, but recovery is possible. And, you know, all we have to avoid is that first drink. Yeah. And we cannot do it alone. Mm-hmm. We can't get alone. We can't get sober alone in our own head because we're battling our own disease. And so we have to talk to somebody. We have to connect. And so, you know, if you feel like you failed because you've tried on your own and you failed, I really want to encourage people to just, even calling the alcohol drug 24-hour helpline. Mm-hmm. You know, just talking to someone there yep. is one step. There's lots of steps that people can take. And, you know, going to a meeting, you, you don't have to talk. You can just sit and listen. Right. And listening to others talk about recovery is very motivating. It really helps us take a next step. Yeah. And some people get overwhelmed with the big picture of like life without alcohol, but I encourage people to just do, just for the next 10 minutes, I'm not gonna drink. Yeah. And then do that all day long. Then do that all day long. For the next 10 minutes, I will not have a drink. Yeah. I will not use methamphetamines for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And usually people can manage, because in the beginning, sometimes 24 hours is too much to manage. Yeah. And we can break it down and this is where we can lower the anxiety by just making small increments. Mm-hmm. And, and But we need support and we need people to help us. Yeah, can't do it alone. I don't no. recommend it doing it alone. No, because because it's it's too hard. Yeah. This disease, we cannot get sober alone. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your story. You're it welcome. has been a pleasure. I feel, I feel like I know you so much more now. Uh, you know, um, I, I, I just want to say thank you to for you being able to to open up like this Mm -hmm. right to share your experience strength and hope with the world yes yeah thank you so much thanks for having me all right thank you for listening to this episode of making an addict for all my listeners i have a special gift for you I created a seven steps guide to power up your recovery and you can access it today. Go to bit.ly slash seven steps guide. That's bit.ly slash the number seven steps with an S guide. 
Go ahead and go there now and get your free guide. Sign up for the newsletter and it will be sent to you in your email. Take care. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at DJBurr1022 and TheDJBurr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Making an Addict is produced by the Recovery Legacy Network, bringing you recovery on all fronts. Learn more at recoverylegacynetwork.com. Today's show featured music by CDK.